He's one of the very few men in history that most people can recognize by name, and no name can ever be as important. Everyone knows of Jesus Christ. But how much do we know Jesus Christ? Join us as we dive deeper into his life, his teachings, and his love, and together we can grow closer and build a personal relationship with him. This is Light of the World in Focus. Hello, and welcome to Light of the World in Focus. I'm Elder Dusnub. And I'm Elder Jones. So, uh, we thank you for joining us today. Today is a bit of a different episode, um, because sadly, this will be our last episode with Elder Jones, because we had received word that he is leaving us. That's right. It was fun while it lasted, but the podcast will stay here in Lockhart, and I'll Go off to do other things. Good riddance, if you ask me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, so we, we uh, are, we're happy you were able to have this experience with us, and I guess uh, luck of the draw keeps me here. So I, I apologize to our audience, you guys haven't got rid of me yet, so. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's really fun to do this podcast. It really makes you think about what, um. What's behind Christ's actions? What makes him do what yep. he does? That's right. And along those lines, that's kind of the first thing we're going to talk about today, is a, is an action of Christ that really helps us get a deeper look at Christ. And so this uh, story we're talking about is Christ's cleansing of the temple. Um, I believe it was at the Passover feast, Correct. Yes, yes. Yeah, he went to... So he was going to the Passover feast um, the way he assumedly went frequently. Um, At this point in time, he was going and he had achieved kind of the age of teachership. So in the Jewish community, once you reached the age of 30, you were publicly um, acknowledged as kind of being allowed to be a teacher of the faith. So Christ, at age 30, um, the public was now kind of, would not be surprised by saying, oh, he's so young. Now, Mm -hmm. at 30, they say, oh, he's the right age for a teacher. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't beyond the bounds of social norms of the day. And so again, we see how Christ kind of, um, he he was a normal guy. He he obeyed the social... uh, the social norms of the time. I mean, we know that at the age of 12, right, he was smart enough to confound a lot of people <laughs> as um, visit the temple then. But note how we waited 18 years later before he started expounding doctrine in, in a more official way. But before uh, that, we have to understand what the uh, circumstance of the temple was at the time that he went there. So a big thing with the temple is that they um, they require uh, sacrifices back in the day. And so there'd be people that don't necessarily have an animal on hand to sacrifice. So there was, um, whenever there's a niche, right, people raise to that occasion. And so there'd be people that would sell these animals. And uh, if they're selling it for temple use, obviously the most convenient place to sell that would be right outside or even in the grounds of the temple. And that's just what they did. Um, another another thing is that um, men were required to pay 
a certain thing each year. Um, do you remember what that was for? Yeah, it's... it was. it's kind of an alms that they would give each year. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Law of Moses to say, um, this is kind of my payment to God for being alive and not serving him full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, they would be automatically expected to be a priest. Yep. And one of the big, one of the big things is that this, this had to be paid in temple coin, right? It couldn't be from a, like it couldn't be a Roman currency. It couldn't be whatever other currency it was because those had heathen pictures depicted on them, right? They weren't worthy to go in the temple, so it had to be with uh, temple money. Well, not everyone just had the uh, proper amount of temple money just laying on hand. So they had to go to these money exchangers. Uh, or basically, like, if you had to go turn your dollars into euros because you're going over to Europe or whatever the thing might be, they had these people. And these people, they weren't known for necessarily being the nicest, most honest people um, because they had a, um, probably not give you back as much as what your money was actually worth. And so they kind of got in a um, stigma of everyone knowing that they're kind of not the best people. Yeah, back in the day, you couldn't just look up on the internet, oh, what's the conversion from Roman coin to temple coin? So these money changers, they would usually kind of cheat you. So people wouldn't like them, and they would just get really rich, have mm-hmm. lots of money, just kind of on their stand. And then... Um, and then that's kind of on top of the people selling animals, um, yeah. the bleeding sheep and goats. I assume some cows here and there. Probably the birds squawking. Yeah, the birds. And so this is going to be pretty noisy. People shouting, hey, hey, these animals are the best for sacrifice. So unblemished. Um, great deals. Come over right now the way marketplaces are. Yeah. That is not the intended spirit of the temple. That's right. I actually want to share an experience. So my, my mom and dad had the opportunity of going over to Jerusalem a couple years. I think it was 2012, so it would have been a little more than a couple years back. Um, and uh, they they were able to walk down the street where they where Christ had walked with the on his way to um, the Hill Gomorrah. Right? Not, yeah. Golgotha, not Golgotha. Gomorrah. I don't know where that came from. I don't even know what that is, Gomorrah. <laughs> Golgotha. And, um, you know, it's a very sacred part of our religion. Right, um, that that walk the Christ did, but they said it was so hard to focus because there's all these street vendors trying to sell them stupid little knickknacks and you know trinkets, right, to all these tourists coming through, and so they just couldn't feel that that reverence, and so that's probably a lot what it was like in this temple, and that's a far cry from what the temple's supposed to be. And not only that, I don't think Christ really liked it when men cheated other men out of money. It's kind of a not honest with your uh, fellow beings. It's not a godly thing to do, especially not in the house of God. Mm-hmm. And so um, Christ was uh, rightfully a little bit angry about this, right? Um, kind of defiling, defiling what the temple was supposed to be. And uh, no one had done anything about it. Yeah, the priests in the temple, they, so the Pharisees, um, they, you would, they would usually get a little bit of moolah out of this too. They'd usually get a good deal. They had their fingers in a lot of pies. Yeah. So, (laughs) so they would kind of turn a blind, turn a blind eye. So, 
So people are just kind of seeing this happen, mm-hmm. and everyone kind of knew uh, it shouldn't really be happening, and no one was stepping out of the crowd to say something about it. Mm-hmm. And besides, even if someone stepped out and said, hey, get out of the temple, this isn't where you're supposed to be, um, these it's not like these money changers would say, oh, shoot, you're right, sorry about that, and uh-huh. take their their um, desk of coins out down the street a little ways yeah. and That's lose, lose business. Yeah. That's right. And so Christ, he knows he has to put changes. Because again, Christ lived a perfect life and he perfectly stood up for righteousness and denounced sin. And so this, this is a story that's always kind of confused people because Christ, he actually makes a um, whip out of cords and uh, he clears out the temple in a way that almost approaches physical violence, right? Which is something we kind of don't think of as like a Christ-like quality, you know, him beating some fools up. <laughs> this is this is an interesting story for that reason, just because anger seems so out of Christ's character. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the Old Testament, you see God being a very kind of vengeful God and that kind of character. But in the New Testament, um, in Christ's mortal ministry, he always seems to be, I forgive all sinners, I forgive all men, I mm-hmm. um, charity is the um, most holy kind of attribute. And he's always yeah. a very a loving, um, kind God. Mm-hmm. So this sticks out very prominently. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, this is a whole other side of Christ's personality. Yeah. I mean, it must have been different to see him running uh, oxen and sheep through the streets. It says he... Uh, Overturning the turret tables, spearing, spilling the coins out everywhere, and just, uh, you know, being pretty physical with everything. But there's one thing that we have to understand, is that Christ, well, he came across as angry, and I'm sure he was, right? He doesn't like it when people sin, especially in the temple. But if you look, he was always, always in control of that emotion. I think what illustrates that best is that while he's, you know, driving sheep, driving oxen, flipping tables, you know, getting people out of there, he takes the time and thought for these birds that are stuck in cages. Like, I, I'm sure that if he just would have flipped the table with the cage on it, that bird probably would have ended up too well, right? Stuck in a cage. You're going to throw it around a little bit. So what does he do? Instead of assaulting the tables or their cages or whatnot, he tells their owners to take these things hence, right? Get these things out of here. And then um, after all this, he has everyone's attention. I mean, (laughs) everyone's turned their eye and he says, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Yeah, that's a very, um, that point you said, how he has everyone's attention. That's one of the big aspects of this is no one would really listen to anything except physical kind of physical rebuke yeah physical reprimand so he he basically used the only language that they would listen Mm -hmm. to yeah that's one thing that we're going to talk about throughout this podcast is how christ always found the perfect way to teach in any given situation um and this is just one of those what was the way that would leave a profounding impact on their minds that the temple is a place of worship and very sacredness, it would be this. Right? Get the people In out. the hustle and bustle, you know, a well-mannered, guys, I don't think you should be doing this, wouldn't go very far. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't the first time someone said, hey, guys, I don't think this is right. I think it's the first time that someone actually did 
the steps necessary. It's kind of the crowd mentality where if you're, they did a study, um, some scientists, I think it was at Harvard University, where they had an actor um, in a busy street fall down and pretend to be hurt. And people would just walk around them and they would be crying out, can someone help me please? And people would just part around them and ignore them because everyone thinks, oh, someone else will take care of it. Someone else will step out of the crowd and do it. So why, why should I stick out and do that? So that's probably what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so Christ steps out and does it. Yeah. And I'm sure, and I think that's one of the big reasons that it didn't end in riot and people didn't grab Jesus and try and like take mm-hmm. him away or something. People just kind of watched and kind of, yeah. kind of startle, I yeah. guess. And I think that really what it was is that they all knew that the temple needed to be cleaned. They all knew that they'd kind of been letting it happen. And so they kind of knew what Christ was doing was right. It's like, you, if you've ever um, done something wrong, and you know you've done something wrong, someone calls you out on it, you usually don't argue as much as if you think you're in the right. Like if the Pharisees saw no problem with what they were doing, they probably would like, whoa, what are you doing? Right? But I think they knew. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And they did, like... They knew that it would be hypocritical, not hypocritical. Hypocritical. Hypocritical, <laughs> that, that word, um, to do anything about it. And I mean, they, the only thing they do is kind of ask, like, hey, like, whose authority do you do these things? Yeah, they're kind of condemned by their own conscience. They're thinking, oh, shoot, I mean, we've been messing up, and finally Jesus does this job for us. We should have done this. And so they're, they, I mean, they still don't like Jesus, so they want to call him out for something. So, like, it was like, it was like, what right do you have to do this? Uh-huh. Basically, whose authority to do this? And remember how I said Christ always sees a time to teach and perfectly does so? Well, Christ sees a perfect opportunity to teach a, a doctrine and have it mean a couple of different things. So they say, basically, what authority do you do this? And Christ replies, and this is something that's confused a lot of people. It confused me until I sat and pondered about it, and then I realized it. It says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now this is interesting, because uh, they take it very literal. They think, oh, he's talking about this temple of Herod. They're like, it took 46 years building this temple, and you're going to tear it down and build it up in... uh, three days, right? That, that's impossible. They use that against him later. Yeah, they do. They, they really resent the statement because to them, the temple is an example of their, of their faith and it's a place where they would go to be seen of men to pray and whatnot. Anyway, but so what, that's kind of a weird thing. By whose authority do you do this? If you um, destroy this temple, I'll build it up in three days. Um, that kind of seems like a weird remark. Well, one, he actually is answering their question. They asked, whose authority are you doing this? And um, you have to understand that when he says destroy this temple, he's not talking about the temple of Herod, but he's talking about him. This is the only thing on earth, well, the only thing right then, where the spirit of God dwelled in. He was, he was part Christ. He was the only begotten son of the Father. Yeah, we say and that. Yeah. So uh, this is a this is a declaration of his authority because they they knew 
Um, it had been testified, like we talked about before, that a, a Messiah would come and to save his people. And I, doubtless they knew that he would die and three days later raise up. And so that's kind of a proclamation of his, his authority. I am, the, I am the son of God. I'm the one that will die in three days I'll raise up again. Exactly. Yeah, we often say the body is the temple of the spirit because our spirit dwells in the body. And so Christ was kind of, he was kind of masking the literal truth of what he was saying mm-hmm. in figurative language so that if you, you would only understand if you took the time to listen. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of one of his other teaching tricks. Like you see him often speak in parables and metaphors and lots of people will just be like, what do you mean? Like even the disciples say, what are you talking about with these seeds or with this temple or with um, this, um, this like vineyard that he talks about? And Jesus, he says, um, he that hath ears to ear, let him hear. Or basically, mm-hmm. if you want to know the truth, if you sincerely want to know what I'm talking about, you'll think about it and you'll figure it out. I told you what you need to know. Yep. Well, that's true. And so, um, of course, this the Pharisees are angry, and there's this big scene at the temple during this important time of the Passover. Obviously, people would have noticed, and he um, would have got a, a little fame talking about this uh, carpenter from Nazareth that, you know, could tell the Pharisees and cleanse the temple. Um, but one thing that was really cool about Christ is that, while he could have used this, um to grow his crowd, he didn't. Because um, it says, you know, there was many that attracted to him by the miracles he performed, but he refused to commit himself unto them because their faith in him wasn't because of what he taught, it was because of what they saw, the miracles they saw. Remember how I talk about miracles aren't a firm basis for a testimony. He didn't want any um, one following him that wasn't following him for the right reasons. Um, and also this, this shows the character of Jesus Christ a lot. Um, because it shows, like we said, he was always in control of his emotions, no matter what. And it shows that we've all been given emotions for a reason. I mean, he was very kind and gentle to people that were sick or in need. He would not stand for sin and any sort of evil doing with any degree of allowance. Um, he was always the perfect example of how to react in any situation. And so I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it seems that um, Christ has his emotions. Like you said, Christ has his emotions totally under control. He's the master of his emotions. That's something that I don't think any of us can fully say that we're the master of our own emotions. Our emotions tend to kind of control us. Like once in a while, we'll lose our temper. Christ um, very clearly didn't lose his temper. He he took um, reasonable anger because something was unjust, something was wrong, and he used it as a tool. Mm-hmm. He was in charge the whole time. That's right.
complete self-mastery. And so this is a really great example of the character of Christ. And it, like I said, attracted a lot of people to him. One of these we talked about him before, but was Nicodemus. Right? He was the one that came to Christ at nighttime to learn more. Um, and we can infer based off of their conversation that Nicodemus, he did have a genuine belief and faith in Christ. He, he addressed him with the title of honor and respect. And oh. he had a sincere desire to learn more. Um, so he comes to Christ and uh, with, with questions. And Christ, this is a really cool conversation because it is one of, one of the most important and detailed um, teachings of Christ that we have in the Bible. And so this is found in John chapter 3. Um, and Nicodemus comes to go, well, comes to learn uh, more about what this Christ guy is teaching about. And so it comes to him at night, and um, he wants to learn more. Um, without waiting for any questions, Christ expels some really important doctrine on him. Um, in verse 2, I believe, um, Jesus yeah. answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Yeah, I have this open. And that, that you just read is verse 3. And to give a little bit of context, right before that, in verse 2, um, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Nicodemus wasn't asking any questions here. Mm -hmm. Jesus immediately gives an answer to... Uh, can be assumed this is a question that was in Nicodemus's heart already for sure and it's very straightforward you have to do this to see the kingdom of God well one thing you'll see throughout the scriptures is that people sometimes take Christ very literally right <clears throat> so when Christ says um, except a man be born again right so I mean that makes sense take literally if someone said hey you have to be born again to be able to do this be like born. Well, the only thing I know of is born is like when you mom gives birth to you, right? So how can I be born again? Yeah, Nicodemus has this question: How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is this is really interesting because Nicodemus is actually like he is a he is a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. He's a professor of the law. He's a thinker, so it's mm -hmm. kind of surprising that he didn't he didn't realize. Oh, he must be he must be meaning something more than just well being born. I think that what his response shows about Nicodemus is, you'll see when um, what happens when Christ answers the Pharisees' questions, and it's different than their beliefs. They get kind of offended, puffed up. How can this be right? Or some Nicodemus be like, what? Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that, right? You false prophet. No, that's not what he says. He has a sincere desire to learn more. And so in his state of confusion, right, he's like, I don't get it. Can, like, can you explain? Like, how, how does being born again, like, actually profit someone? Yeah, I guess I've kind of been... I gave a Nicodemus a little bit of heat there. But, but it's true. He still has... An approach with faith he's 
asking in faith. He still knows, okay, I believe that Jesus is telling me the truth. He's mm-hmm. not just being, he's not just spewing blasphemy right now or heresy. He's he's trying to tell me something really important and I'm yeah. not getting it. So I think it doesn't sound right, which means there's yeah. something wrong with how I understand it. Yeah. And so Christ, um, and uh, to me, I think I've always kind of pictured it this way, where Christ was like, really? You took that literally? Okay, let me expound upon it in a simpler way. <laughs> he probably didn't. I just always like to laugh and think about that. But it says, Verily, verily, um, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Or basically, and I think later on he says something along the lines of, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Yeah, that's the very next verse. Yeah, okay. See, I was on to something there. <laughs> so what he's getting at is we were all born, right? Evidently, we're all, we're all here, so we had to be born unless you were grown in a laboratory or something. That hasn't become an issue yet. <laughs> Has, yeah, hopefully. So we're, we're all of flesh. What's born of flesh is flesh. The thing is, we're never born of the Spirit. And, a lot, and throughout the scriptures, you'll see talk, Christ talk about um, in the Spirit, becoming, you know, relate a lot to the Spirit. So this baptism isn't a physical being born into something. It's a spiritual rebirth, a spiritually becoming something. Yeah, so when, if you remember, Jesus was, Jesus was baptized and set the example. And that example he set through baptism is to show... Um, kind of what is required to become heavenly material. And so the symbolism of baptism is when you go, when Jesus was immersed in the water, it's a symbol of death, mm-hmm. kind of being immersed in the grave. And when he was brought back up again um, out of the River Jordan, that's a symbol of being reborn, coming back from the grave. So now, um, symbolically, he's a new person. And so when Christ says, you must be born of water and of the Spirit, he's talking about the symbolism that his baptism has. The symbolism that baptism has for us is Mm -hmm. to kind of let the the humanity in us, the the imperfections, the evil in us, die. Leave Mm -hmm. it behind. Completely get rid of it. And be reborn into a new person. That's right. A new person devoted to God. And so this is this is what Christ is trying to expound upon um, Nicodemus. I think they have a couple of other um, um, talks back and forth. Won't get into that. But this is what he says in the in the end. Nicodemus says, "How can these things be?" They're basically like, "I don't understand. How is how is this possible?" And the reply from from Christ is really kind of cool. Um, it says, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Um, or basically, how, how are you a master? How are you a Pharisee? How are you, how are you a learned one of the land and you don't understand these things? This is, this is what I was kind of talking about earlier when I, was, mm-hmm. when I was thinking about Nicodemus saying, shouldn't he have seen that coming? Shouldn't he have recognized that was a metaphor? Mm-hmm. Um, now that I'm looking at it here, um, it's interesting because there's actually a little, a little nugget that I just noticed. So if you look a little earlier, um, Christ is talking about, um, 
he's talking about understanding things. And he says, um, Christ says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. Basically saying, hey, the wind. This is something that's in your life every single day. You can hear it. You know it's there. Where does it come from? Where's it going? And and back at the time, they didn't really understand the science, like the meteorology of wind. So there's like, oh, well, I don't know. You don't understand this very simple thing. So even though you were a learned man, a professor, a scholar of Israel, mm-hmm. um, you should expect to not know everything. There are some very simple things you can still learn. So we all have something very simple we can still learn. Yeah, and if you look at that, um, we still have a lot to learn, and we're going to be held accountable for what we don't learn. I think Nicodemus was held in reproach for him not uh, understanding these things. And that's what Christ says. How do you not know these things? You know, we, we can't... I've always been told ignorance is no excuse right um like we have the scriptures before us we have the teachings of christ and we can't say well i didn't know about that rule i don't know about that if we never took the time to study right yeah there's things we don't know and we just don't know we don't know and god understands that but if we don't try to know we don't try to understand we don't try to grow I think God will hold us accountable for that. That's right. He's not going to hold us accountable for something we never had the chance to learn. Mm-hmm. But if we have the chance, if we like, if we know who Christ is, and we know that he, if we have like the Bible in front of us, if we have all his teachings here, um, and we choose not to learn, mm-hmm. choose not to study, choose not to look at the metaphors and see the inner meaning, mm-hmm. um, God's going to say, why didn't you do that? Yeah. It was right here for you. Mm-hmm. It was waiting for you. Why didn't you just take it? Yeah. It's a blessing that you could have. Yeah, the point I was getting at was um, I think a lot of it was more of a rebuke of the Pharisees as whole because I think that they kind of learned and studied the laws. They understood it and they wanted it to be and they passed it on. They didn't try to learn anything new, right? And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so I'm sure this was this was Christ saying, you know, you can't just you can't just stay stagnant, right? You can't say I've learned this much that'll be good. You have to continue to grow because there's a lot to learn and not a lot of time to do it. So God doesn't expect us to know everything. He's not going to hold us accountable for everything, but he's going to hold us accountable for not trying. But luckily, and another cool thing at, at the end of um their their conversation is though he just kind of um um, reproofed Nicodemus. Um, he also gives him instruction to help him. Um, the last, uh, his last words that he gave him says, but he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Um, or basically, um, if you want, if you want the truth, come into the light, seek it, find it, and um, you'll, you'll be able to find God. And so it's not that Christ comes in and says, you're doing terrible, and then just leaves. It's like, hey, you're not doing the best, but you can do better, and here's how you can do it. He always gave people away. And so that's, that's another cool little character of Christ. Always help people grow. That's right. He loves help. He's, that's kind of the, 
theme of his whole ministry is he loves seeing people progress, seeing people become better, more um, more holy, more understanding, um, closer to God. He just it seems it's very clear he takes so much joy in that. Yeah, he loves seeing people grow. He does. I mean, that's the. He, he loves to teach. That's something we're going to hit more on the podcast if we have time. So, anyway, so Nicodemus was uh, pretty soon after um, the cleansing of the temple. And afterwards, Christ and his disciples leave Jerusalem um, to go on their way doing great and grand things. Um, and it, it is important to know at this point, this is one of the last times, if not the last time, that we will... Uh, We'll talk about this person, but John the Baptist is he's still doing what he's been doing since uh, he started his ministry. Still crying in the wilderness, still, still crying in the wilderness. baptizing. Exactly. Still testifying of Christ. Yeah. Well here's here's the thing, is that it's he's doing the same thing that he had done before, but the purpose of it is different. Um, before he had baptized in preparation for the coming of Christ. But now he baptized people that were believers of Christ, right? See, his purpose changed, but the job is kind of the same. Yeah. Before it's like, one's coming, and he will be the savior of the world. Okay, now he's here. If you believe, show him by being baptized. And even though John had clearly testified of Christ being the savior and the Messiah, there were some people that followed John and loved John so much that they still wouldn't accept it. And they kind of came to John and uh, with, with some concerns they had. They're like, hey, we're losing a lot of your followers. And they're going to follow that, that Christ guy. Like, what, what are we going to do about that? And John at the end, this is, you know, one of his last, if not his last testimony of Christ. Um, and I just want to read a little bit about Jesus the Christ. Again, we've been basing a lot of what we've been talking about off of Jesus the Christ, so we're hoping that you guys are reading through that. But this is what James E. Talmadge says about um, John's response. He says, His answer was to this effect. A man receives only as God gives unto him. It is not given to me to do the work of Christ. Ye yourselves are witnesses I disclaimed being the Christ, and that I said I was one sent before him. He is as the bridegroom. I am only as the friend of the bridegroom, his servant, and I rejoice greatly in being thus near him. His voice gives me happiness, and thus my joy is filled, fulfilled. He of whom you speak stands at the beginning of his ministry. I near the end of mine. He must increase, and I must decrease. He came from heaven, and therefore superior to all things of earth. And I think that's a beautiful testimony. He's like, what do you guys not understand? I Christ is the one that sent. I am I am just a servant of him. Right? Believe me, go follow Christ. He is the savior and this is my testimony. And one thing that I've really gotten into in this podcast that I never had before was an appreciation for John the Baptist because I never quite really understood his role before. And I've learned a lot and there's a lot of different reasons for it. But if there's one thing that I've really taken away with is that John was almost, John was an amazing example of how we should live our lives. He came, he did what God asked him to. He lived a humble life. 
It's and like he, humility again. He, yeah, he did not. He did not put his office above that which it what it was. He did not put his calling above that which it was. He never claimed to be anything close to Christ. And even after Christ had came, he continued to do what he'd been commanded to do until he was released. He kept doing his job until God said, "Your work is done." Yeah, it, he had a lot of following, so it would have been easy for him to say, um, "I've got the answers, so come to me and I'll help you." He could have he could have gotten a, a, his following a lot bigger real fast, and so the fact that he told people, "Hey, it's fine that people are leaving; they're going to my master," and so he didn't feel like he was losing disciples at all. He was just bringing them to the truth. Yeah, that's really. Again, that's his humility aspect. So we've covered um, um, kind of the beginning of Christ's ministry in a couple of, in the last few episodes. We want to just do a quick recap of kind of where he's been going. So if you remember right at the start, um, he gets baptized by John the Baptist up in the northern half of Israel in Galilee um, and the River Jordan. Then he goes to the wilderness to uh, fast and pray. And that's where he's tempted of the devil and shuts him down like that, which is awesome. Um, that's still up north in Galilee. Then he gathers some, chooses some disciples. He goes to the wedding feast and turns water into wine up in Galilee. Um, and just now he went down to Judea, the southern half, to Jerusalem, where the temple is. That's where he cleaned the temple out. That's where he talked to Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. Um and in the next episode, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about um, his next journey. So he's going to go back north to Galilee. And in between Judea and Galilee, there's this little um, kind of The land state. of Samaria. Yeah, yeah. It's, a little, it's, a, it's a land area um, full of the Samaritans. Yep. And that is a very, uh, um, that in and of itself that he passed through Samaria on his way to Galilee is very important. And we're going to analyze that and more in our next episode of Light of the World in Focus. So thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And um, we hope to see you again soon. That's right. Thanks for listening. And be sure to share this with your friends as always so that they can, they can think about Christ and what he can teach us. Think about the deeper meaning. But, um, but we'll see you next time. So have a good one.